Uh, we're going to read our scripture. Ed, where are you? You're right in front of me. Ed Harris, would you come on up and uh, read our scripture? As Ed comes to uh, read from the Gospels, there you go, sir. Send them out, my friend. Um, would you stand as Ed uh, reads from the Gospel of John? John two thirteen through 22. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all of them, all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign you sh can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for loving us enough to bring us to you, to work in our lives, to make us something good out of something that's not. We also thank you for working in our community, and we thank you for the opportunity to work along with you. Help us go at your pace. Help us understand your will. We ask that you speak through your servant, John, this morning, and that his words will be comforting to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks. Ed, how many Sundays have you been at Cornerstone? This is my first one. <laughs> It's number, number three or four, right? Okay. It's three. It's okay. Three. Awesome. You can be seated. I don't know how to turn this off. Though. All right. Thanks, Ed. Uh, I really like this story, uh, maybe because it makes me feel better about my anger issues. <laughs> hey, Jesus got angry, so I'm okay to lose my patience with my children. That's what I'm kind of hoping for this morning as I had a rough bedtime last night. Uh, I, I really like this story of Jesus, um, and there's one verse in particular that I loved, and if you have your Bible, it's verse 15, um, especially with a story that's familiar. It's good to, to try to put on the lens of your imagination and figure out what would it be like if you were there. I like verse 15, so Jesus made a whip out of cords, and I think, okay, he walked into the temple. He sees what's going on. He runs to CVS and grabs, like, some, some cords, and he's sitting down outside the temple gates, and he's, like, like, tying this thing together. And one of the disciples, and I'm going to say it was Bartholomew, because Bartholomew doesn't get any action in the Gospels. Bartholomew's like, what are you doing? He says, I'm making a whip. Like, I, don't know if that, I don't think that's such a good idea, man. <laughs> that is a really bad idea. And it made me, it inspired me. I don't know if any of you in this room are artists. Callan, I don't know if you're in the room, but... I think we should start this unlikely portraits of Jesus art exhibit because there are paintings of jolly Jesus. And maybe you've seen these in like church lobbies or camps where Jesus is 
grinning. Or there's Jesus with the gentle lamb. He has the lamb over his shoulder or in his arms, and he's very sweet. Or Jesus calming the storm, which is a very comforting image to all of us going through the storms of life. But I want to do these unlikely portraits of Jesus where he's like kicking over one of the tables and it's frozen and his teeth are gritted or like Jesus like pulling the whip back and people are afraid of him. That is an art exhibit about Jesus I would really enjoy putting on. I might even buy a print of that like and reference it with my kids. Hey, when I get angry, Jesus did it too, you know. Um, stampeding cattle. That would be another great one. Jesus stampeding cattle out of the temple. That, I would put that over the mantle in the house, um, which would be really... T- Tell us about this piece, John. Well, it's from the Bible. Um, but, you know, we're trying to see Jesus with fresh eyes. And we're in, we're in John's gospel. We're, we're trying to take a hard reset, which is the language that we've used, that we get deeply confused about God, about Jesus, about what this whole thing is about. And so we've said from the beginning, some of us need a hard reset on our spiritual operating system. We need to start over. There was this BBC show called The IT Crowd. Has anybody seen The IT Crowd? Just me. Dustin's seen it, okay? And uh, The IT Crowd is this IT department in a, in a big company, and every time someone calls the IT department, they say, IT, have you tried turning it off and on again? Because <laughs> half the time, that's what helps. Sometimes you just need to turn things off and turn them back on. And we've said we need a hard reset of our spiritual operating system. Uh, Things have become sluggish or things have become uh, confused. We say the way that we're doing that together as a community is by taking a long, hard look at the person of Jesus. And the the scriptures teach us in John's gospel that to see Jesus is to see God. To, To learn what Jesus is like is to learn what God is like. And so if we're confused about what God is like, we should take those questions and those concerns to the person of Jesus. And often the narrative that we believe about God is not the narrative that we see unfolding in Jesus. And as we've been studying John's gospel these last four weeks, we see in Jesus a God who wants to have a relationship with us. We see in Jesus a God who respects our dignity and works to preserve our dignity. I loved studying the Jesus turning the water into wine last week. We see a God who can change the nature of a thing from water, which is simple, to wine, which is cultivated. He rewrote its history, and he can rewrite our histories too. In Jesus, we see a God worth knowing and worth loving. We see in Jesus this, uh, this lifeline We've been reflecting on John 15, 5. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you'll bear fruit. If you want to have a fruitful life, an abundant life, it's to be connected to the person of Jesus Christ. If that's the secret of flourishing, that's what we want to do. And those in our community who are doers, who are like, just tell me what to do. Just tell me how to apply this, are struggling in some ways with this series because it's not saying, like, here's how you go fix yourself. We're just painting a picture of Jesus, and I want you to see him, and I need to see him. And if Jesus is God, and this is what the scriptures teach us, that we need to see in Jesus the face of God. And if, we, if our vision is off, if I tried to drive without my contacts in or without my glasses on, it would be very dangerous. And we all live, many of us live that kind of way in our thinking about God. We are, we, things are blurry. We need to clarify what God is like by taking a look at Jesus. Uh, Ed Watson is here. Uh, Ed was one of my professors at ORU, undergrad Bible. And uh, in one of my my first classes in the theology department, they talked about uh, theology 
Now, the study of God, you know, has two key tasks, two things that you have to do. One is called the critical task, which is asking questions about something that already exists. So while I'm preaching, many of you are already performing the critical task because you're considering what I'm saying against the standard of Scripture, against what your best understanding of truth. Or you listen to a song or you read a book and you're comparing it, you're asking critical questions about that thing, whether it aligns with God's design and with truth. That's the critical task of theology. The constructive task of theology, on the other hand, is here's how I'll say it better. So I like, I love worship music. I've, I've, I led worship when I was in high school and college, and, uh, um, and I, love, I love worship music, but a lot of the worship songs I find, like, the content's, like, almost there. And so in my, perhaps, arrogance or quest for correctness, I like rewriting songs, at least when I sing them, you know, on my own. There's the, there's the critical task, that's not good enough, or that's not quite there, and the constructive task is, here's how we could do it even better. And in general, it's easy to be a critic. The harder thing is to do the work of putting forth a new idea. And in Jesus, we see both of these tasks, this critical task and the constructive task in operation. We saw the constructive task last week that Jesus is throwing a celebration, that the story demonstrated that the presence of Jesus among his people was starting something totally new. It was supposed to be a party because of the transformation that was happening because Jesus was in their midst. It was, it was a constructive thing. In this, te- in this uh, text we're looking at here, we see the critical nature of theology, of Jesus coming in because there's something that's not quite right. There's something that's misaligned with what God is trying to do. And this point, this critical and constructive thing is summarized at the end of John chapter 1, where John says, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth, this new thing, this construction of a better version of saying it, has come to us through Jesus Christ. And so as we look at Jesus cleansing the temple, which is, which is a really cool text, there's an obvious critical thing going on. Jesus is confronting something that's going off in the system, some abuses within the system. But I want us to go a little bit deeper this week and see that there's, an even, there's a more important, there's a stronger critique that Jesus is doing that is easily missed. So you'll notice at the beginning of this passage, verse 13, that it, it says it happens at the time of Passover. Now, this is not the first time in John's gospel that we've heard about Passover. Passover is the celebration of when God instructed the people when they were slaves in Egypt to slay this lamb and to put the blood of the lamb over their doors. And in doing so, God would spare their lives and lead them out of slavery in Egypt toward the promised land. And John has already said that Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the new Passover lamb. The Passover was a big deal in Israel, big deal to, to Jews. And it was a great pilgrimage festival, which meant that no matter where you lived, you made your way back to Jerusalem, to the temple, to celebrate the Passover. Um, Josephus, who's an ancient historian, estimated that there were 2.7 million people in Jerusalem at this time. And Jerusalem is not a huge city with winding streets. It's not huge, but Josephus says there were 2.7 million people there, and all these people, all these Jews are making their pilgrimage to the city so that they can celebrate the Passover with their people and in the temple. And they had to do two things while they were there. One of them, uh, the book of Leviticus instructed that at Passover, you got to pay the temple tax. Most of the people were Roman citizens, and so they used Roman coinage, which was 80% silver. 
The temple required a higher, a higher mint, a higher quality silver. It had to get to this Tyrian coinage that came out of the city of Tyre, and it was more pure. It was 94% pure silver. And so they had to exchange the coinage they had, which was in Roman currency, for this nicer stuff to pay it at the temple. It's something they had to do. The other thing is if you're coming from hundreds of miles away or from a great distance, you're probably not going to carry a lamb on your shoulder. It's like if you're going to go on a vacation and you're going to like cook while you're on vacation, you're not going to bring the ketchup with you in all likelihood. You're going to get the ketchup at like the grocery store right by the place. Similar thing here. They're not going to carry their, their offering, their sacrificial offering, great distance, so they're going to buy it there. So we've got 2.7 million people in the city. They've got to exchange their currency, and they've got to buy a lamb if they're going to participate in the sacrifice. And so you think, well, if this had to happen, if they had to exchange their currency and they had to get a lamb, then what on earth is the big deal? What is Jesus uh, critiquing here? What's he confronting? And there's one level we can read this. On the surface, we can read the words of Jesus. He said, stop turning my father's house into a market. And it was based on this verse that I had a near existential crisis this week, thinking about whether it was ethical to sell (laughs) T-shirts. I'm serious. I sent out texts to a lot of people like, I don't know about this. So we decided to sell them under cost as a way to make my guilt feel a little bit better. (laughs) The temple was supposed to be a place where heaven and earth meet. The temple was supposed to be this, this beacon, this locus of God's presence in the middle of earth, but they turned it into this souvenir shop. They turned it into a circus. It was, it was mayhem. You go, uh, Emily and I got to go to Israel a couple of years ago, and you go to some of these places that are supposed to be holy sites. I remember going to Bethlehem in particular, and it was, honestly, it was just a mess. There are these trinkets and tchotchkes like on every corner of the street, and you go in, and it's like, so we're supposed to be looking at the cave where you know, the, the nativity happened. Like, this does not feel very holy to me. This feels like profiteering. And you go to some of these other holy places, and it's like uh, it, the, the sales department of these holy places really throws the vibe off for me. And I think about how maybe that's what Jesus was getting at with the temple. The temple is this place where heaven and earth meet. It's this holy thing where divinity touches humanity. Holy cow. And they've commoditized it. They've turned the sacred and the holy into a county fair. This place was supposed to be the epicenter for God's blessing going out into the world. And it had become inbred and misguided and chaotic, this religious extravaganza. And Jesus, as we hope he would, confronts this off-track system. I know because I've been in conversation within this community that a lot of us have struggled with church because we feel like we could give the church a similar diagnosis. Things that we talk about sometimes or books we put out or the things that get us angry or really excited, we think, my gracious, how did we get to this? And sometimes the church feels like a chaotic circus that's just gone off the rails. And many of you, and and I'd say, for me, are frustrated with that. And, And sadly for me, sometimes I'm probably the cause of it in my own micro little ways. The church has gone off track, and we think, what on earth are we doing I was recognizing as I read this that this text could be co-opted by anybody who's got beef with the church or beef with, like, the religious system. And I think a really important thing to note here is that Jesus is the one doing the cleansing. 
that Jesus is the one setting the agenda. Jesus is the one writing the course. And, and I want to say, I'm not the head of this church. Jesus is the head of the church. And so there are going to be times where I'm tempted to go off track or I do go off track. I'm inviting the correction of the Holy Spirit. I'm inviting the Lord Jesus to get us right where we belong because it's Jesus' church. He's the one who initiates these change. He's the one who reforms as he sees fit because he's the head of the church. Not me, not you, not the board. Jesus is the head of the church, and it's on his authority that he initiates those reforms. Now, this could be enough. We could probably do an open mic morning where all of us just talk about the ways in which the church has hurt us, or we could, we could really dwell, and, and we would do well to do it probably on airing the grievances of, of religious systems that go off track. Uh, but there's something even deeper going on, and something I think that John, more than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, has got a unique window on, a unique vision that we really need to see. It's not just that Jesus is confronting the abuses of the temple, but I definitely think he is. It's that Jesus is confronting the system itself. Jesus is confronting the temple itself and hinting that the temple itself is term-limited. It's got an expiration date. The religious leaders ask Jesus, by what authority are you doing this? They say, it's like the equivalent of saying, where's your warrant? How do you get off doing this? And Jesus responds, and they don't have a clue what he's saying. And this happens a lot in John. There's a misunderstanding that goes on. Jesus says, well, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it again in three days. The word he uses there for raise is not like reconstruct. It's the same word used elsewhere in the Bible for resurrection. And he's talking about himself. He refers to himself as the temple. And he's hinting, and we see this line running through John's gospel, uh, that there's a new temple that's coming, that the physical temple in the middle of the city has served its purpose, and it's being replaced. And so when Jesus comes in and drives out the money changers, which they needed to participate in the worship of the temple, and he drives out the sacrifices, which they needed to worship, Jesus was making a prophetic action he was saying something bigger is going on here. You need these things to participate in the temple, and I'm sending those things you need out of here. I'm doing something new. The temple has served its purpose. And the Scripture says, there's a little nugget in there, that after Jesus' resurrection, after he was raised, the disciples remembered this conversation, and they believed in him. And I think it's probably, it's probably difficult to truly appreciate what a big deal this is that Jesus just did. Okay, so I'm going to take a swing at trying to explain it from a different angle. The temple is the center of life for Jewish people. The, the temple is the center of worship, it's the center of government, it's the central of, of commerce, of religion. It's all of these things uh, wrapped up in one. And so, and also, obviously, it's just this massive structure. Even Herod's temple was, was smaller than Solomon's, but it's just huge. It's so big in scale, it makes a statement about what it is. I think it would be kind of like this. I think it'd be kind of like a lobbyist going to Washington, D.C. on the 4th of July. And the lobbyist goes to Congress while it's in session. I know they're not in session on the 4th of July, but work with me here. He goes into Congress... And this lobbyist clears the place. Get out of here. And he locks the doors. And then he goes to the Supreme Court. And they're in session. And he clears them out. He kicks tables over and chairs over as he leaves and freaks people out. 
Then he goes to the Department of the Treasury, and they're printing money, and he turns off the machines, and he scares everybody out. He goes to the White House. He goes to the National Cathedral. All of these things that represent a core piece of our government. This lobbyist goes in and shuts things down, and then has the audacity to stand on the steps to the Lincoln Memorial and say, hey, remember the Constitution? I'm everything, me, that the Constitution was hoping for, that the Treasury that the White House, the executive branch, the judiciary branch, the legislative branch, all of them find their fulfillment in me. Therefore, I'm getting rid of all of this and everything you're looking for is in me. Now, how would that go over? <laughs> it's the kind of thing that could get you killed. That's the scandal, what we're talking about when Jesus marches into the temple. When he stampedes the cattle out of there, when he gets rid of the money changers, when he disrupts worship on the most important day of the year, this is what Jesus is up to. And it's hinting at this bigger controversy, this new thing that Jesus is stirring up. He's saying this old temple is done for because I in myself am a new and better temple. I in myself am a new and better Passover lamb that will be slain once for all people for all time. In the person of Jesus, heaven and earth meet. And all of these things have found their fulfillment in him. The temple had been the locus, the focal point of God's presence on earth. And now wherever Jesus went, that's where God's presence went. It's forever relocated in Jesus and that sacrifice, that weight of sin that the people carried around. Can you, remember, what, can you imagine if you had to carry a lamb with you every time you came to church? The weight of sin that people bore, they, they had to carry into, their, into the temple, was now released. I was holding my son during music, and my, I had him in my left arm. And my arm was so sore after two songs. And think about the weight of sin that we carry the depression that comes with that, the shame that comes with that, the exhaustion that comes with, the questions about our, about our identity and our value that, that come with that. Jesus said, that weight you don't have to carry anymore. You don't have to make your pilgrimage to a specific place of geography on earth because Jesus is the new temple. In a couple of chapters, Jesus is going to interact with the Samaritan woman, and he's, he's emphasizing to them, and the woman has no idea what a big deal this is. The woman says, well, well, you Jews say you should worship on that mountain, and we Samaritans say you should worship over here. And Jesus said, the time is coming and now come when true worshipers are going to worship in spirit and in truth. It's not tied to one piece of geography. Why are you still fighting over land? Jesus is saying the temple is redefined in him. The sacrifice, the Passover is redefined in him, so you don't have to keep sacrificing, and you can't out-sacrifice your sin. You can't out-baptize your sin. There's one sacrifice for all time, and it's in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is hinting, and this is the gospel in the gospel, that everything that the law required for us to be made right with God, he himself is providing. Paul said in 2 Corinthians, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. And Jesus' response, his invitation to us, and the disciples got it. When they realized what was going on after his death and resurrection, what does the Scripture say? They believed in him. And the invitation of God here when Jesus is, will you trust me? Will you trust that I'm enough to make you well? 
Will you trust that I alone can put you back together? Will you trust that in me heaven and earth meet and that longing at the core of you can find its fulfillment in me? Even I've struggled in preaching these sermons wondering, what do we do? Like, what's the point of application? And as I've studied Jesus, and I just, I've come to, to just love Jesus even greater, studying Him and watching the quiet ways and the great ways that He works, just find myself wanting to look at Him, wanting to get Him. And that, there's that vision, you know, taking out my contacts, everything's so blurry, I can't see the road, I can't see you. And seeing Jesus clearly is like putting on your contacts. It's like getting a sense of, oh, this is how things work. And Jesus asks us this question, will you trust me? Will you trust that I'm enough for you? And so the invitation for all of us is, just, is to do just that, to apprentice ourselves to Jesus. I was thinking about, you know, John's gospel used this word believe a lot. At the very end, he's going to say, the reason I wrote all this was so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. But what's belief? I was thinking about if a little kid believes in Santa Claus. Can, have you ever heard of a child who believes in Santa Claus but is not a practicing Santa Claus-ician? you ever heard of a child who believes in Santa Claus but doesn't put out the milk and cookies, doesn't hang up a stocking, that doesn't wonder where the gift is from, Christmas, or from Santa and write the note to him? It doesn't make any sense because if a kid believes in Santa, they're going to do the stuff that goes along with the Santa story because they believe this reality. Does it make any sense to believe that Jesus is the anointed one of God, the Messiah, the Son of God, the one through whom God is remaking the heavens and the earth, and not wonder how we get to participate in his story? Not wonder how he might want to renew and recreate even us? So he asked the question to us, will you trust me? Do you believe in me? Will you stake your life on me? Whether you're familiar with his story or you're getting reacquainted or you've never heard of it, the invitation is the same. Will you trust me? Will you believe in me? And as we come to the table, we have this awesome story that we tell that we believe is true. That if Jesus hadn't come, we'd be hauling in our arms. Well, unless you're Jewish, you probably wouldn't. We're all gent Many of us are Gentiles in here. We'd be hauling in our arms the weight of our sin, the reminder of all the ways we've, we've broken things with God. We're jacked up. But it's a, it's a profound theological statement that we come to this table empty-handed, not to give a sacrifice, but to receive the one that was sacrificed on our behalf, Jesus Christ, who gave his life out of love for you, so that you might know him, that you might experience life and join him in his story and what he's doing in the world.